Uh, welcome, everybody, to the uh, Lakatoshi Award Lectures for actually 2015. I know it's 2016 now, but um, the award gets announced, the, the competition gets announced in 15. I find as I get older, the process takes longer. Um, but it is uh, 2015, and the two winners are with us today. Uh, I'm glad to say the joint winners this, this, uh, this time are Gordon Bellot and David Marlament. Uh, I won't say any more about the Lakatoshi Award uh, because I'll be saying a lot more uh, at the reception afterwards, to which you're all invited. That will be in the uh, senior common room on the fifth floor of this building. Uh, I'm supposed to tell you to turn your mobile phones off. And apparently there's something called a hashtag, but I don't know what the hell that is. But uh, if, if those of you who understand this terminology, it's LSE Lakatosh, not too surprisingly. Okay, so our first speaker... Uh, I'm very pleased to introduce, and it's Gordon Bellart from the University of Michigan, and he's going to talk on Objectivity Limited. Both speakers will talk for roughly 30 minutes. There'll then be 10, 15 minutes of discussion, and then the second speaker and the same thing. Gordon, please. Thanks very much, John. Excellent. So, um, thanks very much. Um, I feel like I should start with... Um, you know, the sort of uh, pretentious thing that people expect philosophers to start a talk with. So the kind of thing people say is like, ah, we're told that philosophy begins in wonder, but I don't really find that's, that's so true. I find it, for myself, I find it very often ends in confusion um, in a sort of good way. And so uh, that's my goal, to uh, have this talk end in confusion in a good way. But if I miss a little bit, you know, uh, at least it will, I'll still get a half right. Okay, so... Um, Consider a nice, simple question like, um, when were sunspots discovered? Okay. So uh, you can consult this learned work, and you'll see that uh, reports from Chinese astronomers date back about 2,200 years. And uh, reports from European historians date back about 1,200 years. So there's already kind of interesting discrepancy there. Um, here's one from a Russian medieval chronicle. Uh, there were dark spots on the sun as if nails were driven into it. And the murkiness was so great that it was impossible to see anything for more than seven feet. Apparently, they thought the sun was much closer in those days. Woods and forests were burning, and the dry marshes began to burn, and the earth itself burned, great, great fright and terror, etc. Good. Um, an example of a uh, medieval European historian. But the strange thing is that uh, no astronomers uh, in Europe uh, at that time reported seeing sun sunspots. Indeed, if you trace the sort of Greco-Arabo-Latin tradition um, from the astronomers that preceded Ptolemy down through uh, the beginning of the 17th century, you find uh, no reports of sunspots. Um, so it's only since the invention of the telescope that you find uh, uh, astronomers in this tradition confident that they've seen something like sunspots. So several great astronomers, Al-Kindi, Ibn Sina, Kepler, reported having seen black spots on the face of the sun, but uh, each thought he must have seen a transit of Venus, Venus going across the face of the sun. So what was going on in the West? Right? So uh, the, the standard explanation, uh, it seems like there might well be a correct, uh, uh, you know, at least a grain of truth in it, is that in Greek astronomy and its descendants, the heavens were supposed to be changeless, incorruptible. The sun was supposed to be perfect. And it appears that astronomers working in this tradition 
on this question at least, saw what they expected to see rather than what was staring them in the face. <coughs> so, um, you know, they were living amongst people who could see sunspots, but they didn't see them themselves uh, because they were learned and uh, they knew that there shouldn't be sunspots there. Okay, so that first section there about the sunspots was called the perils of preconceptions. And the point was that sometimes, at least, um, your factual or methodological preconceptions about how the world is uh, affect what you end up believing. Right? Two people can see the same data and end up having very different beliefs because they have very different starting points. So let's say we all want to reach the truth. That seems more or less true. And it's clear that some preconceptions, beliefs, and methodologies frustrate that desire. So in the long run, of course, uh, the Greek tradition about the perfection of the sun didn't prevent people from eventually seeing sunspots everywhere. But for a long time it did. More than a thousand years. Um, And you could also have methodological preconceptions uh, that would inhibit your desire to reach the truth. I mean, just to give like ridiculous, simple cartoon examples. Um, If I start out life certain that the moon is tiger-infested, there's basically no evidence I can see that will be inconsistent with that hypothesis. And so I can just stick with it, no matter what I see. I can never survey the whole moon at once. I'll just always think they're on the dark side when I'm on the bright side and so on. It's just the kind of thing moon tigers would do. So if you have a perverse enough methodology, you're, uh, you can be insulated from the truth, even if you see all kinds of evidence that people with nearby methodologies would eventually latch up, uh, uh, see what's leading them to the Okay, so, I mean, I think, roughly speaking, this is a, a big problem in philosophy of science and epistemology and a lot of other parts of philosophy, um, to try to delineate um, the good acceptable preconceptions or starting points um, f- from the bad, unacceptable ones. Right? And the border we're after is the border between those preconceptions that obstruct our, tr- our search for the truth and those that don't. Yeah. Um, here's a very simple idea, sort of the first idea that will occur to anybody who starts thinking about this. Um, it's like, okay, maybe we should just not have preconceptions. Right? If um, some preconceptions interfere with me getting at the truth, maybe I just shouldn't have any. Like, you think about those Greek astronomers and their uh, intellectual errors. Like, yeah, they just would have been better off if they didn't have this extra belief about the sun being perfect that really didn't do them any good, but did do them some harm. They would have been better off without it. Right? And maybe that's true for each of our preconceptions. We'd be just be better off if we had none whatsoever. Okay. So uh, a natural first thought is we should avoid all preconceptions. So we should begin inquiry without making any substantive assumptions about how the world works. Uh, Unfortunately, this idea uh, uh, is essentially incoherent. So uh, there's lots of different ways of making this point. I'm going to follow one uh, pioneered by uh, Nelson Goodman in Fact, Fiction, and Forecast. So, but I'm going to, those of you who know that book are now worried that I'm going to mention uh, Gru and Bleen. 
and ruin everything because everybody will fall asleep. But I'm going to do it without mentioning those, and hopefully uh, that'll make it a little more palatable. Okay, so imagine that your task is to design a robot that's going to be sent to a distant world where um, it's going to explore its environment, uh, make measurements, and also make predictions. Right? It's so far away that it's going to be out of contact with us. Right? So you've got to sort of um, construct the robot so that it's going to be good at this job without you being able to guide it once it gets there. So, I mean, you want to equip it with some kind of onboard computer. One aspect of that will be um, you'll give it the ability to do at least some logical operations. Right? Without that, it would be totally sunk. Call that a deduction model module. But you also want to give it in some sort of induction module, right? some kind of procedure by which it learns from experience. Some set of rules that it uses to decide what predictions to make given the evidence it's seen. And logic alone won't allow it to do that. So you know, the, the very basic kind of thing you'll probably want to build in is some procedure that tells it that if it's seen a million Fs and they've all been Gs, then it should predict that the next F will be a G. Right? So, it's seen a million rocks. They've all had mass. It hasn't seen uh, you know, any, any rocks without mass. It should expect the next rocket sees to have mass. The sun has come up every day, a million days in a row. It's never not come up. It should expect the sun to come up the next day, and so on. It seems like that's a pretty safe rule to give it. But here's the point. If you don't build uh, into the robot expe uh, expectations about the, what the world is like, the robot will end up making nonsensical predictions. So suppose, for instance, it's been on this distant world for just short of one year when it sees its millionth emerald. Okay. It's a, a world very rich in emeralds. It's just seen its millionth one just as the first year of uh, uh, operation on this planet is coming to a close. So what sort of prediction uh, should the machine make about what the next emerald it sees will be like? Okay. Now, Emeralds there are just like emeralds here, so they've all been green. Right? Every emerald the machine has seen has been green. It's seen a million emeralds. They've all been green. The rule tells it to predict that the next emerald it sees will be green. It's also, it's seen a million emeralds, and all of them were blue or seen in the first year. Right? They were all seen in the first year. So they were all either blue or seen in the first year. There's no emerald it saw in the first year that didn't satisfy this description just as well as it satisfies that. So, it should expect the next emerald it sees uh, to be green because of the first bullet point, and it should expect the next emerald it sees to be green because of the second... Uh, did I reverse it? It should expect the next emerald it sees to be green because of the first point, and it should expect the next emerald it sees to be blue because of the second point. Because we haven't told it ahead of time which of these two properties is more important, because we didn't want to build any substantive expectations about what the world is like, it's going to end up making inconsistent predictions about what the next emerald it sees will look like. Of course, you're thinking, yeah, but we wouldn't do that, right? We would tell it just to pay attention to things like this and never to pay attention to things like this because we don't want it to make inconsistent predictions. And that's right. That's the point of the example that unless you make those choices when you set the machine up, it's not going to be able to do its job. Okay. But making choices like that is building preconceptions about the world into the machine because you want it to be able to learn things about the world. 
Oh, sorry. So a way of sort of summing up this kind of point is inductive learning about the world is possible only against a background of substantive belief about what the world is like. Good. Okay. So uh, this original idea of absolute objectivity, trying to live your life without any preconceptions whatsoever, isn't going to work. You'll end up in the same situation as the machine, thinking of every similarity and every dissimilarity as being equally important, and so having no idea what the future is going to be like, no matter what kind of evidence you've seen. So it looks like we're stuck trying to live our life with some preconceptions, at least. We know there are some kinds of preconceptions we want to avoid, because they're going to inhibit our desire to reach the truth. But we also know we can't live utterly without them. OK, so that's our predicament. We can't proceed without preconceptions, so we need some way of differentiating between the acceptable and the unacceptable preconceptions, between those that frustrate our desire to reach the truth and the others. So here's a natural idea. A preconception is harmless if it doesn't prevent you from getting closer and closer to the truth in the long run, and harmful if it does. So those preconceptions that prevent you from getting closer and closer to the truth in the long run, those are the ones we definitely want to get rid of, right? They're the ones that are, we are definitely preventing us from reaching the truth. But it seems like the other ones, the ones that don't prevent us from getting closer and closer to the truth, they seem like they're kind of okay, right? It might not have been ideal for Greek astronomers to start out thinking that uh, the sun was perfect. But because the original state was such that there was evidence they could see that would allow them to give up that belief and then to start seeing sunspots. We just think like, okay, maybe that preconception slowed them down in their desire to reach the truth, but it didn't utterly frustrate the desire. Right? What we really want to stay away from are any preconceptions that would utterly frustrate our desire to reach the truth. No matter how much evidence we saw, we wouldn't end up converging to the truth in the long run. So let's say a method for addressing a problem is convergently objective, just in case applying the method is virtually guaranteed to lead to beliefs that converge to the truth as more and more evidence accumulates. Okay, it's a bit of a mouthful. We'll see a couple of examples in a minute that will, I think, make the notion uh, clear enough. And here's a, here's a proposal. If our method is objective in that sense, then we should believe its outputs. On the other hand, if the method is not objective in this sense, then we should not believe its outputs. So this is just saying, like, if you're in a situation where you know you're using some method and uh, there's no reason to think it's going to lead you to the truth in the long run, then you should probably distance yourself from what it's telling you. Whereas if you're using a method and you know it's going to lead you to the truth in the long run, then it's basically as good as any method, at least in a very coarse-grained sense. And you might as well believe it if you're going to believe anything. OK, so the proposal above is plausible, I think. I mean, I started out thinking it was plausible before I confused myself. <laughs> and it's been endorsed in, uh, by many scientists and philosophers in sort of different forms. Um, it's, uh, uh, there's a lot of ways of uh, approaching the same question, but I think this core idea can be found in many places. So my goal is to investigate its consequences by considering some simple problem situations and asking what methods for addressing those problems are good methods for finding the truth. Uh, before I begin, I should say something about what I mean by sorry, something about what I mean about a problem situation. Right? So I'm imagining you're presented with some hypotheses, and you're thinking one or the other of them is true. 
If the truth lies outside of those hypotheses, then, okay, this, you know, it's sort of game over for this problem. Right? Uh, and what, one of the things that means is we're not assuming that the hypotheses you're presented with cover every possible situation. Okay, so part of my point here is that whether or not a method is a good way of reaching the truth really depends on what hypotheses you're considering. So take the method of uh, sipping and tasting. Right? I'm now highly confident that that's water and not wine. But if you ask me to determine whether it was water or heavy water by doing that, I would have no confidence at all. And because that method, sipping and tasting, doesn't give you any evidence uh, that's relevant to the question whether it's water or heavy water. Similarly, if you ask me to sip it and taste it and then decide whether uh, uh, I was living a normal human life the way I thought I was, or uh, I was, in fact, the victim of an evil scientist who just had my brain in a vat somewhere and was making me believe I was walking around on a stage, I would say, yeah, sipping and tasting won't help me with that. Okay, so um, part of the point about this is you only, we're only aiming to find a method that converges to the truth given a small range of hypotheses. We're not asking you to be able to solve uh, skeptical problems like uh, whether or not you're a victim of a deceitful evil genes. Okay, so here's a kind of problem uh, where we get intuitively good results from the proposal at hand. So a coin is going to be tossed repeatedly, and you're going to be told the outcomes, heads or tails. And what you have to decide is whether the coin is two-headed or normal. Does it have the queen on both sides or just on one? Um, uh, convention is the head, if, it's got the, if it comes up and you see the queen's face, you report heads. Um, so a good method here is to believe that the coin is two-headed unless you're told it comes up tails. Right? So if it is two-headed, then you'll start out believing the truth, and you'll stay with the truth no matter what you're told, because you'll always be told heads, and that's fine. You said heads, 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 and that converged to the true answer, heads. If it's a normal coin, then you'll start out believing it's heads, and you'll keep believing it's heads until you're told that it's tails. Now, it's possible that it will become up uh, heads infinitely many times, even though it has heads on one side and tails on the other, but it's virtually impossible that that could happen. So you're virtually guaranteed that eventually you'll be told tails, and then you'll switch your opinion and believe it's tails from then on. Uh, sorry, two-headed uh, two from then on, and uh, so you will have answered the problem correctly. Here's a bad method. Just believe the coin is normal no matter what you're told. Right? Then you're not guaranteed to converge to the truth. If it's normal, that's fine. You nailed it. But if it's not normal, you never got anywhere. You were shown all this evidence, and you never learned anything from it. Your initial belief was totally insulated from the truth. Okay, here's another kind of problem. Uh, a, a coin is tossed. Uh, this time it's got heads on one side and tails on the other. Um, it might be a perfectly fair coin. That's 50-50 chance of getting heads. Uh, but it might have a slight bias in favor of pets. And again, you're told the outcomes of all the tosses, and you're supposed to guess uh, the bias of the coin in favor of pets. So here, this, the most straightforward thing uh, you could possibly do works really well. If it comes up uh, heads three times in the first four tosses, then you guess the bias in favor of heads is three quarters. If it comes up heads six times in the first 12 tosses, you guess the bias in favor of heads is exactly a half, and so on. 
You just like look at the frequency of heads in your data set, and you guess that's the right answer. That method of approaching this problem is virtually guaranteed to give you a bunch of answers that converge to the truth in the long run. Okay? It may never get exactly there, but it'll get almost certainly it will get closer and closer as you see more and more evidence without bound. Okay. So that's the kind of convergence we're looking for. Okay, so here's another kind of problem. There's going to be two versions of it. The first one's going to be really easy, and the second one's going to be really hard. So here's the really easy one. Uh, nature, you know, statisticians like to think about this thing, things this way. Nature is revealing to us a binary sequence, one bit at a time, right? Zero, one, 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 zero, 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 right? Like that. Um, th in this case, it's doing it by de deciding whether or not to freeze the Thames, right? So we're going to make an infinite binary sequence by starting in the year 1400 and every year writing down a one if the Thames freezes over that year and otherwise writing down a zero, so we're going, to get, we're going to start in 1400, and we're just going to keep going forever. Uh, so here's, here's the data we've seen so far. <laughs> Apparently, there's some disagreement about these two years, so I put them in parentheses. Uh, but otherwise, that's the list of the years the Thames froze uh, since 1400. Apparently, uh, it's not just about the weather. It's also about the bridges. Uh, an a bridge was destroyed in the uh, 19th century that used to collect a lot of ice, help the Thames to freeze. You've got to take everything into account. Um, right. So here's the game we're going to play. Every year, after finding out whether the Thames froze that year, uh, reviewing the whole historical record, you're going to be asked to guess what the entire sequence looks like for all of future history. Okay, so that, call that your forecast. Now that sounds like it might be hard to r reach the right forecast. But it turns out, actually, it's really easy. Okay, so here's two methods you might follow, personified. Let's call them Ms. Zero. Uh, so what she does is she takes the record so far and then just writes an infinite sequence of zeros after it and says, that's my guess. Mr. Nietzsche writes out the record of how the things have gone so far, and then he writes it out again, and then he writes it out again, <laughs> and then he writes it out again. Okay, so these are two very straightforward methods, and they're both guaranteed to converge to the truth for this problem. They're both convergently objective. No matter what the true binary sequence looks like, their sequence of forecasts converges to the truth. Why? Well, what would, what would it mean if I asked you to write down a guess for the exact value of pi every day? Right? What would I mean if I said I want you that your sequence of guesses to converge to the true number? It would mean that eventually you got the first digit right and stuck with it forever after that. And eventually you got the second digit right and you stuck with it forever after that and so on. That's really easy here because nature shows them the first bit and then nature shows them the second bit and so on. So as long as they proceed by starting with the data they've seen and pasting anything on the end, they will eventually be right about the first bit and eventually right about the second bit and eventually right about the third bit and so on forever. And so their sequence of guesses will converge to the true answer. It sounds like a hard problem, but actually it's ridiculously easy. Good, so let's have a second version of the frost fair problem. In this one, after reviewing the data so far, uh, you're asked not just to conjecture what the true sequence is going to be, but also whether the relative frequency of frost fair years is going to be one in 100 in the true sequence. Um, so, so far, it's been much less, but uh, who knows, 
right? In the future, things may be different there. So our two characters, Ms. Zero and Mr. Nietzsche, will have straightforward answer to answers to this, right? Ms. Zero, she always starts out with whatever data she's seen and adds all zeros. So for her, the relative frequency of frost fair years in all of her guesses is always going to be zero. No matter how many she's seen, she's going to add an infinite number where there are none after that. And so basically she's going to say, oh yeah, her guess is sort of always, oh yeah, at the beginning of history there's some frost fair years, and then after that there's none forever. And so she's going to say, no. Whatever da data I see, I'll be sure that in the future there aren't going to be any frost fairs. Mr. Nietzsche will say, well, it depends. Right? So he writes out the data sequence, then he writes it again, and then he writes it again, and then he writes it again. So if the data he's seen happens to have a frequency of frost farriers that's exactly 1 in 100, then at that point, the conjecture he writes down will have uh, a frequency of 1 in 100 frost fares. One, one frost fair per 100 years. Um, so he'll say yes in that case. But if the data he's seen doesn't have that feature, he'll say no. Okay, so they both have nice, straightforward answers to this. Now, neither of these methods is convergently objective. So think about, in order to be convergently objective, we've got all these conjectures, we've got all these hypotheses about what the future might be like, the, the entire history might be like, namely all the infinite binary sequences, all the sequences of zeros and ones. Consider, in order to be convergently objective, no matter which data stream they see, they have to output a sequence of conjectures that gets it right in the long run, converges to it. So consider a particular data sequence that they might see, namely the one in which the Thames freezes in 1499, 1599, 1699, and so on forever. For this sequence, the right answer is yes. Frost fairs do occur once every 100 years. Um, but these two methods will output a sequence of answers to the second frost fair question, which do not converge to that answer. Because Ms. Zero, we just agreed on the previous slide, was going to say no every single year, no matter what data she saw. And Mr. Nietzsche, we said, would say yes in those years where the data leading up to that had a frequency of ones of one in 100. So for this particular data stream we're considering, that's going to, he'll say yes in 1500 and 1600 and 1700, 1800 and so on. Every new century he'll say yes but he will never say yes in any of the other years. So Ms. Zero is going to say no, 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 no. And that is not a sequence that converges to yes. And Mr. Nietzsche is going to say yes. He's going to say no 99 times, then he's going to say yes once, then he's going to say no 99 times, then he's going to say yes, yes, yes once, and so on forever. So he's going to flip-flop back and forth between yes and no, ad infinitum in the future. And that's not a sequence that converges to the true answer yes either. Right? At any point you look, where he said, yes, he's going to say no at some point in the future. So you're like, ah, oh, you haven't nailed it yet. Now, it's not just those two characters who had very simple-minded methods. It turns out, in fact, that no method is convergently objective for this second frost fair problem. And the reason is, every method is either like uh, Ms. Zero in an important respect or like Mr. Nietzsche in an important respect. So... Every method is either closed-minded in the sense that um, for some data, there are some kinds of uh, finite sets of data you could show them after which they would make up their mind about either yes or no and never change it no matter what they saw afterwards. 
That's like MIS0 is a very special case of that. And those people have the feature that there are some data streams they could see that would lead them to just land on the wrong answer and stick with it forever, just like MIS0. The other option is that you're open-minded. No matter what data you've seen, there's ways of continuing the data stream that would make you change your mind. Right? You've seen some data, you've landed on your answer. There's some further data you could see that would make you change your mind. If you're like that, then you're like Mr. Nietzsche in that there's data streams you could see that would make you flip-flop ad infinitum between yes and no. Right? So everybody has to be either like that or like that. These people, for some data streams, reach the wrong answer and stick with it. These people, for some data streams, alternate uh, ad infinitum between yes and no. So neither of them is um, convergently objective. Okay. You know, in itself, maybe that doesn't sound so bad. Like, some problems are hard and some problems are easy. The first version of FrostFair was easy, right? So that was great. Then we looked at a second version that was hard, and it turned out there was no good method, right? Okay, so some problems are hard. So far, so good. But now there's a disaster. So think about the suggestion whose uh, plausibility we were supposed to be checking out. The suggestion that uh, we should believe the outputs of our methods if and only if they're convergently objective. Sorry, we should believe the outputs of those methods that are convergently objective and disbelieve the outputs of methods that are not convergently objective. Mizero Mr. Nietzsche, um, if we run their case through that general piece of advice, this is what we find. Right? Their method for uh, handling the first Frostfair problem is convergently objective. So they're seeing a bunch of data, they're making conjectures. Since the methods that they're following are guaranteed to converge to the truth no matter what data they see, they ought to believe the outputs of those methods. So whatever, whatever stage they at, are at in history, they should be saying, yes, yeah, here's my conjecture and I believe it. Their method for handling the second Frostfair problem was not convergently objective. So our general piece of advice tells us that they shouldn't believe its outputs. Right? So uh, however much data they've seen, they'll conjecture either yes or no about whether the total relative frequency of Frostfair years will be 1 in 100. But they won't really believe those conjectures because they know the method they're following isn't guaranteed to lead them to the truth. So they should abstain from belief, according to our advice. Okay, but now they're in a terrible predicament because here they are saying, like, I've seen this data. On the basis of that data, I totally believe that this is what the future is going to be like. But don't, you know, a precise account of exactly which years are going to be frost fair years in the future. But they're agnostic when you ask them whether the future, the future frequency of frost fair years will be 1 in 100. Okay, so this is like if Newton had said, the data show that gravity varies inversely as the square of distance, but don't ask me if it varies inversely as the square of some power. Right? They're totally willing to believe a very strong claim that their, first, their method for playing the first game tells them, and they're totally um, agnostic about the output of the second method. But of course, if you believe the output of the first method, you're thereby committed to believing an answer about the second question that you're asked. If I believe the future will be exactly like this, then I'm committed to saying uh, the total frequency of frost variables will be 1 in 100 if that's how it is in that sequence. If I want to have my beliefs closed under logical implication, that's what I have to do. 
And it seems like our normal methods of scientific inference have that feature. So it seems like this general piece of advice that sounded so good is inconsistent with an extremely important feature of our ordinary scientific method. So here's the depressing conclusion. If I'm successful, I've left you confused in a good way. As reasonable as it sounds, the suggestion that we should believe the outputs of methods guaranteed to converge to the truth and doubt the outputs of methods uh, that are not guaranteed to converge to the truth has to go. And with it, the most promising idea for drawing the boundary between acceptable and unacceptable preconceptions. Uh, so we must either sometimes believe the output of a method that's not guaranteed to converge to the truth and or sometimes disbelieve a method that is guaranteed to converge to the truth. All right, thanks very much. Okay, thank you very much. So we've got a few minutes for questions. Oh, I thought I'd run away. Lloyd, yes, I first one I saw. Yeah. But isn't there a simple solution here just to say, well, you should believe everything that uh, follows from the usage of methods that are convergently objective and everything that's, that follows from those beliefs? Uh huh. Yeah. Um, and nothing else. Yeah, so I think that's a possibility. It, um, um, yeah, so I sort, of have, I, I sort of have two things to say in response to that. I'm not sure either of them will satisfy you. So one is, um, I mean, I'm, I think that when we're faced with scientific problems like um, determining the, inter the internal structure of the sun from you know, measurements taken near its surface, uh, we often we can sort of see that some of our methods are not guaranteed to lead us to the truth. Right? There's just too much internal structure there for certain kinds of measurements to be able to tell you everything. And I'm very tempted in those cases to say, yeah, we, sh we should, we should. There, there's a lot of facts then that we should be agnostic about. Um, but such, uh, and for the same kinds of reason, uh, I'm worried in general about. Uh, sorry. I guess my inclination is to think that uh, people who share that uh, feeling should be worried in general about um, uh, believing outputs of methods that don't converge to the truth, aren't guaranteed to converge to the truth. But I could, I could absolutely see people thinking you should go the other way. Um, the second thing is, uh, of course, all this is proceeding at a ridiculously high level of idealization. Um, and I'm not confident that if we were tried to be more realistic about um, what counted as a method and what counted as a problem, we could always separate um, into neat packages the kinds of propositions that we're interested in so that we would be able to tell whether something followed or not from uh, a convergently objective method. But I mean, you, you might also think that's, uh, I mean, that's, a, that's a very serious worry about uh, proceeding at this level of abstraction in the first place. Eric. Hello? Uh, con converging to the truth in the long run is, is, is a very, very strong criterion. Oh. Uh, my, one, one might, for instance, uh, say, look, we can be quite objective, whether locally, so to speak, we're getting better or worse answers, and let's stick with that, because... For instance, that's, I, I would claim historically exactly what Newton did. He didn't say gravity is, goes as the inverse square. He said, right now, in, my, in our current state of knowledge, my best answer, better than all the others that have come before, oh, yeah. is that gravity has you know, gone inversely square. And, I, I didn't mean more than that, 
that by belief. But if you conditionalize on local knowledge, then converging the truth in the long run is, is, still, very, is still a very, very strong ideal. I, I don't understand why, why we just shouldn't stick with locally better and worse. We shouldn't say, sorry, what was the just stick with Just stick with locally better and worse in current state of knowledge. Um, is, is, is this a picture on which truth just doesn't come into it at all? I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble. Uh... Um, uh, absolute truth of the capital T? No, I guess it really doesn't. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I feel a little vertiginous um, if I'm told there's no fact of the matter about the bias of a particular coin that outstrips our evidence about it at uh, during finite periods of time, but I, I, you know, perhaps that's just a matter of taste. Could you give it to Matt right in front of you? Oh, yeah, thanks. Um, so I'm not sure I remember what my question was before because I've been thinking about what Eric was saying. But, um, okay, so so how about this? I mean, maybe the these criteria that you should believe. Um, the output of methods that converge to the truth, and you shouldn't believe the output of methods that don't converge to the truth, isn't very plausible in the first place. Mm-hmm. And what we should believe is what's inductively, inductively confirmed to the extent that it is conductively confirmed, and then probably deductive closure of belief doesn't follow if we're just talking about... I see. I see. Yeah, yeah right. So belief as an on-off notion... Which yeah, I'm very sympathetic to that, um, but I also and, and so I sorry, just want to and I also want to suggest that it shouldn't be on the basis of something that we really can't even tell whether or not our method uh, is you know nearly guaranteed to converge to the truth, but it should be it should um, rather just depend on um, sort of Bayesian. Ah, good, good. Yeah, so I think that's another way you could go. Uh, I think there's a there is a problem here, a challenge here for Bayesians. Um, which is, so, you know, how is a Bayesian going to play this game? They'll start out by saying, uh, well, I'm going to consider the space of hypotheses of all infinite binary sequences, and I should, before I begin the game, I should put a prior on there. And then every year, I should conditionalize as the data comes in. Um, um, now, uh, if you're the kind of Bayesian who thinks you should start out by spreading your credence around over the whole space, let's, for convenience, say you're like that, so... It, that means uh, for every initial uh, uh, s- segment of one of these data sequences, you think there's non-zero probability of that. I mean, I think that, that's the natural way to go if you're a Bayesian. Um, if you're one of those people, then um, it turns out typical data sequences will make you flip-flop ad infinitum uh, when you play this game. Typical in the sense, uh, not, not of measure, but of uh, category. Um, so the set of sequences for which uh, you don't flip-flop ad infinitum, will be uh, first category, so meager. Um, sorry to everybody for this technical bit. Um, so that's kind of disappointing. Weirder, though, if I, once you've put one of these uh, priors down, I can tell you that. Right? That's a mathematical fact, being you know, logically omniscient. The Bayesian knows that. Um, at the same time, I can ask the Bayesian, uh, what probability do you put on the set of sequences that make you flip-flop ad infinitum? And they will always say probability zero. So each Bayesian agent is certain that she will be successful in this game, even though it's obviously very hard. 
Um, so this game is not quite as obvious that it's hard as some of the other ones. So you might think, here's another version of the game. You're shown an infinite binary sequence, and you're asked uh, to guess whether the number, you know, the sequence you're being shown is a binary expansion of a rational number or an irrational number. And now that, I think most people react to by saying, that's too hard. There's no way I could be successful at that. But every Bayesian agent will put probability one on the proposition that they will be successful and converge to the truth. Uh, I, think, um, I think that's an awkward feature of Bayesianism. And I think for those Bayesians who are tempted to think of uh, Bayesianism as an analysis of rationality, uh, I think it's an especially awkward feature because I, I don't think rationality to, could require you to be certain that you're good at certain games that are obviously too hard. Richard, to pass it back in, probably. Uh, so, yeah, your, your example persuaded me of the exact opposite of Eric's claim. Uh, I mean, I think it ah. shows that convergence is far too weak a criteria. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that, I, that, yeah. I, that's why I sort of hopped yeah. when Eric said it was, uh, <laughs> it was strong, because most, most people think it's too weak. Yeah, because then you, uh, this Nietzsche, Mr. Nietzsche and Mrs. Zero, yeah, both, right. both their methods tell right. you what to believe, but they tell you different things. So right. It's, it's going to be in trouble if you... So, but, so, so uh, presumably the mistake here is to think that convergence to the truth has got anything to do with reasons for belief ah. at all. And, but, okay. so, so, but, not, but one thing it does seem to have something to do with is the confidence one has in those beliefs. So, I mean, it tells you at very least that whatever method you're employing, if it's got these convergent properties, then sort of as each day goes by, you can have a little bit more confidence in what your method is telling you, the output of that method. Um, and if it converges very fast on the truth, then your confidence can go up a little bit faster. Uh, so uh, that's something different. It doesn't solve your problem, but at least yeah, convergence right. is not completely redundant. Right, right. I mean, of course, the problem is, in the, with, say, take the, the version of the problem we are just talking about with rational and irrational numbers. I mean, uh, I think anybody playing that game against you know, an omnipotent being would think uh, no amount of evidence I've seen yet is... Uh, really should sway me very much at all. Um, because uh, when you look at the way the sequences could continue, it's exactly the same as the set of hypotheses you started with. Um, about the, uh, the first point, about um, uh, uh, yeah, convergence to the truth being uh, too weak. I mean, I think part of why I'm interested in this story is because that is, you know, I, I started out by thinking about Reichenbach on induction. It's, I'm sorry again for the uh, technicalities. Um, uh, and I used to think that was pretty good. And of course, the main, you know, the, the standard objection is, yeah, but uh, Reichenbach is too liberal. He endorses all kinds of methods that are crazy, as well as our method. Right? And sort of the point about this is, it, it is, I, I, you know, I, I concede that, and I also think it doesn't endorse our own method. In fact, uh, and that's a problem. Um, now, I mean, you don't have to really. I mean, I was setting it up so that convergence to the truth was necessary and sufficient for having a first-rate attitude. Um, you, you can weaken that a bit. Um, as long as lack of convergence is sufficient for a bad attitude, you can build further uh, uh, conditions into the, what it takes to get a pro attitude without spoiling anything. Katie's going to have a last very quick question, and Gordon's going to give an even faster answer. Yes. <laughs> Can't guarantee that. <laughs> uh, thanks. That was a nice talk. Um, so I, I guess I'm taking the bait a bit and thinking that this idea that you want a method that, you know, by your own lights, given the hypotheses you're entertaining, 
converges to the truth in the long run mm -hmm. uh, in terms of your belief update. Um, but I, obviously I see the problem that you've posed. But I guess, I, so I was, I'm wrestling with the Nietzsche case because it mm. seems like surely we can, there's, it suggests a modification of this convergence criteria that's still sort of trying to honour that criterion. Uh -huh. So, I mean, in the Nietzsche case it seems that Okay, there's a problem with convergence in the long run because the responses are flip-flopping yes. every hundred years. But at least for whatever finite sequence um, of cases there is, you're going to give the right answer for that finite sequence in terms of the frequency of frost days or whatever. Right, right. Um, so, you know, that might be a slightly different criteria, but still in the spirit of the converging to the truth criteria. Right, right. So, it, yeah, for, right. So, um, I mean, you might think, oh, uh, uh, Mr. Nietzsche's pretty good. Like, he only flip-flops once every hundred years. Right? Of course, he only also gives the right answer every hundred years. Um, so, uh, I'm... Uh, in this particular version of the, the, the setup, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that he's, he's much of a success. But there are definitely other, other setups where I think it's more tempting to look at something like the long-run frequency with which somebody gives the right answer or something like that rather than requiring them to actually converge. I mean, of course, the trick here is making the second problem be a yes-no answer so that convergence is, in a sense, uh, quite difficult. Um, and that's one way around it. Thank you. Okay, well, let's uh, thank our first speaker very much. Second Blackstock uh, Laureate is uh, David Malament, uh, recently retired from the University of California, Irvine, uh, famously at the, uh, Chicago. Uh, again, I'll be saying more about both Gordon and... Uh, and David at the, at the reception, so let's just fire straight ahead with uh, David's talk on, on the concept of rotation in relativity theory. Thanks, John. So in my book, I discuss a number of topics concerning the foundations of relativity theory. One of them is the concept of rotation in relativity, the, the concept of rotation there. My plan is to give you a summary description of what I say in, in the chapter and to do so in terms of simple thought experiments. I'm not going to presuppose any special familiarity with the mathematical form formal formalism of the theory. When philosophers of science discuss rotation, it's usually in connection with old controversies concerning absolute versus relative conceptions of motion, the significance of Newton's water bucket argument, Mach's principle, and the like, I should say at the outset that my concerns here are largely, if not entirely, independent of those matters. So let's consider this question. Suppose I have a, a ring, think of it as an idealized, as a perfectly circular, one-dimensional ring. What does it mean to say that the ring is not rotating? I'll use the negative formulation. What does it mean to say it's not rotating about the axis? All this within the framework of relativity theory. Well, here are the principal claims I'm going to make. First, in some circumstances allowed by relativity theory, not all, or equivalently, in some exact solutions to Einstein's equation, but not all, the question has no simple, unique answer. One has many inequivalent criteria of rotation. 
it's possible that the ring is rotating in one perfectly natural sense and not rotating in some other equally natural sense. <coughs> Second, none of the criteria fully answers to our classical intuitions. By that I mean that each one delivers determinations of rotation and non-rotation that will strike many people, and certainly strike me, as wildly counterintuitive and strange. And second, it's possible to capture this last claim in the form of a no-go theorem. I'm going to formulate a number of conditions that arguably one might want a criterion of non-rotation to satisfy and claim, and in the book I fully argue, uh, that in some circumstances, not all, it's simply not possible to satisfy all those conditions. The cost of satis satisfying some will be violating others. So I'm mostly interested in this very general negative claim that applies to all criteria, but I think it'll help to have some examples before us. So uh, I'm going to consider three examples, and this certainly is not taken to be a, an exhaustive list of ones that might occur to us. The first is called the compass of inertia on the axis criterion. Second is called the compass of inertia on the ring. In both cases, inertial effects will be used as the criterion for rotation, the presence of such effects. Those are the effects that are revealed by water buckets, gyroscopes, and so forth. I'll set things up in terms of gyroscopes, but that's not essential. The third one's a bit different in that it doesn't involve inertial effects. It involves something that's called the Sagnac effect. So here's the first one. Uh, so I have an ide my idealized thought experiment. Imagine that we put a, a light source at one point on the ring, and at the center we mount both a telescope and a gyroscope. Both are allowed to pivot freely. Intuitively speaking, for the moment I'm just appealing to your ordinary intuitions, um, if the two at some initial state are co-aligned, if the axis of the telescope through which one sees the light source and the axis of the gyroscope are co-aligned, then they'll remain in alignment forever. On the other hand, if intuitively the ring is rotating, say in a counterclockwise direction, then we'll see the telescope axis uh, process with respect to the gyroscope. After some point it'll be there, and then it'll be here, and then it'll be back there, and so forth. So on the first criterion, I'm giving you a proposed definition. I'll say the ring is non-rotating according to this first criterion, if you like, it's the uh, gyroscope on the axis criterion. If in the situation described, if they are initially in alignment, they stay in alignment forever. I'll just mention in passing that we can use this setup not only to make a determination or have a criterion for rotation or non-rotation, but we can also use it to determine a magnitude of angular rotation. So if the, <clears throat> if the telescope is processing, we can keep track of how long it takes to complete one, one round trip and use that to determine an angular speed. Okay, so that's the first one. And now here's the, uh, I, yeah, I could also set this up with a water bucket. I could have a water bucket in the center and I could mount my uh, telescope to it. I could keep track of the state in which the telescope is successfully tracking uh, the light source and then look to see if in that surface, in that state, the water was flat or concave. 
Okay, next. This one's a bit simpler because it only involves a gyroscope. There's no telescope around. And I mount it on the ring itself, again, so that the uh, gyroscope gets to decide in which direction to point. It can pivot uh, freely. So imagine that in some initial state, the axis of the gyroscope is orthogonal to the ring itself and points outward. Intuitively, if it's not rotating, it'll stay in that position forever. It'll remain orthogonal and pointing outward. But now suppose that intuitively it's rotating again, say, in a counterclockwise direction. Then after some, oh, let me go back. After some point, it'll reach a state in which the axis is tangent to the ring or it's co-aligned with a, uh, a tangent line to the ring. And then further, once again, it'll be orthogonal, but now it's pointing inward. And then it's tangent again, and so forth. That's the experience we would have under garden variety circumstances with a rotating ring. Here I want to elevate that to a definition, to a proposed criterion. We'll say that the ring is not rotating in the second sense, the gyroscope on the ring sense, or the compass of inertia on the ring sense, if, as I've described, if it's initially orthogonal, it stays orthogonal forever. Or more generally, the angle between the gyroscope axis and the tangent line to the ring is constant. Okay? And now finally, number three. I don't have a moving diagram for this. It was beyond my abilities. But suppose we amount a light source at some point and we now send light signals around the ring in opposite directions and have them come back to the initial point. There are various ways to arrange that. One could set up lots of little mirrors around the ring, each one tangent to the ring, or we can lay a fiber optic cable around. But one way or another, we will send them around in opposite directions and have them come back and keep track of whether they arrive back at the initial emission point simultaneously. We can do that using an, an interferometer, for example. Now think about it. Intuitively, if the ring is not rotating, we would expect that the signals come back and arrive at that uh, point at exactly the same instant. On the other hand, if it's rotating, we wouldn't expect that to happen. I mean, think of it this way. In one direction, it's as if the light pulse is moving towards an approaching target. In the other direction, it's as, it's, it's as if it's chasing after a receding target. So in that case, we wouldn't expect them to arrive at the same instant. And the interval between the first arrival event and the second arrival event, the amount of time between those two events would be correlated with the speed of rotation. Now this third way of uh, detecting or measuring rotation might seem arcane um, or contrived, but in fact there are instruments presently in use in sensitive navigational systems that essentially work along these lines. They're called optical gyroscopes or ring laser gyroscopes. There's a picture of one that I stole from Wikipedia. Okay, so now we have three criteria, and I get to ask my first question. Do they agree? Well, it depends on the background space-time structure. If we're in flat space-time, if we're in Minkowski space-time, or quite a number of other well-behaved garden-variety space-times, the Schwarzschild solution would be another good example. 
then they do agree, and someone would never be called upon to choose among them. But, here's the first point. If you're keeping track, I'll have four points, and this is the first one. In some relativistic space-time models, including ones that may well describe regions of our universe, for example, the Kerr solution, no two of the three criteria agree. Okay, now I want to switch to talk about conditions on a criterion of rotation so I can work towards the formulation of my no-go theorem. So I am, this is important, I'm distinguishing between criteria of non-rotation and conditions that such criteria might or might not satisfy. The first one is the relative rotation condition, and it's in, it's in some sense by far the most important. Suppose we have two rings with the same axis. I can now consider whether each of the rings individually is rotating according to some criterion that might be of interest to me. But now I can also talk about the rotation of one, wing, of one ring relative to the other. And so here's a condition that one might want to consider. So, um, so here it's phrased. The, the condition is this. For all rings R1 and R2 with the axis, just as in the picture, suppose that R1 is non-rotating. And I've put this in quotation marks because it's a placeholder here. I'm not thinking about any one criterion in particular. It's any one that I might want to consider. And suppose that ring R2 is not rotating relative to R1, then one might expect that R2 would be non-rotating, again in quotes, according to whatever criterion we have to be considering. Well, uh, there's one thing there that I have to say more about. R2 is non-rotating relative to R1. What do we mean by that? Well, there are various things we could mean, and it actually doesn't make much difference how I... Uh, fill that in, but just so as to be specific, let me propose one way to do it. All I really need here is a sufficient condition, and it might as well be a very strong condition. Let it be this. Suppose I take any point on the first ring and any point on the second ring, and I send a light signal back and forth between them, and I keep track of the round trip time, how much time it takes to complete the round trip. I can require that that round-trip time be constant. Um, intuitively, if one ring were rotating relative to the other, the distance between the two points would be changing, and so the round-trip time would have to change accordingly. So let me understand R2 not rotating relative to R1 this way. The two are, as it were, moving rigidly together as if they're a rigid gang system, and that means that distances between points on the two rings are constant. So there I have my condition, and so I get to ask my second question. Do the three criteria that I've mentioned satisfy the relative rotation condition? Well, my answer has the same form as before. If we're in a garden variety space-time, like Minkowski space-time, or the Schwarzschild solution, not only will the three criteria agree, but they'll all satisfy this condition. But here's the second point. In the Kerr solution, for example, none of them satisfy the relative rotation condition. Um, 
If that seems surprising, that, that's the reaction that I think is appropriate. And when I said that these are counterintuitive, that's the sort of thing that I had in mind. I'd like it to be completely clear what, I, what I'm saying here. Suppose, for example, that we work with the first criterion. I use a gyroscope as my, or a water bucket as my standard of non-rotation together with the telescope. We're imagining that in the Kerr solution, which again may represent some region of our universe, the first ring passes the test. When the telescope tracks the source of light, it doesn't move at all with respect to the gyroscope axis. The second one is moving rigidly with respect to the first. In that sense, it's not ro rotating relative to the first. But the second ring doesn't follow, doesn't pass the first test. When I track the source of light there, the telescope processes with respect to the gyroscope. Now that can be formulated as a mathematical proposition that they don't agree, that these criteria don't satisfy this condition. There's something that one has to prove, and I, I, do, try to, I do try to prove those things. But the statement can be understood in these simple operational terms. There's an experimental prediction here. Um, so the Kerr solution is the unique plausible candidate for describing space-time structure in the vicinity of a rotating black hole. It isn't important for my purposes that uh, there be such in the universe, um, but there seems to be good evidence that there are such. If there are, then the Kerr solution at least approximates uh, the space-time structure in their vicinity, and the claim is if we perform these experiments there, uh, we'd witness, we'd observe the violation of the relative rotation condition. So it was the realization that these criteria violate the relative rotation condition that sort of got me started on the idea of a no-go theorem. Of course, it might be that we just weren't thinking about good criteria here. It might be that there's some other criterion that we might have considered that does satisfy the relative rotation condition that seems like one we would want to see satisfied. And so I suppose one can ask, are there any criteria of non-rotation that satisfy the relative rotation condition, in particular in the Kerr solution? And the answer is certainly yes. Um, but none are reasonable candidates. So for example, I could close my eyes and pick one ring in some state, dub it non-rotating, and thereafter I could take a ring to be non-rotating if it's non-rotating relative to that one. That would work, but I want to make the claim that uh, none of these would be reasonable candidates, and I'm going to do that now by mentioning two other conditions, and the claim will be that if they satisfy the relative rotation condition, they must violate one of the other two. So there are three conditions. We've discussed the relative rotation condition. Then there's a limit condition, and there's a third one that's very, very simple. That one will go by quickly, but there is something of substance in the limit condition. So here's a first informal statement of something. The three criteria do not agree, agree in general but always, in all space-times, there's a sense in which they agree in the limit for infinitely small rings. The degree to which they make differential determinations of angular speed will always shrink to zero as the diameter of the ring shrinks to zero. So I, I claim we can, I can make that precise, and I'll do so in just a moment. 
But uh, let me say this first. It's a substantive claim of convergence and it requires proof and it's one of a list of things I do in the chapter. But I also want to claim it's what we should expect to be true. And I'll make a stronger claim. I've considered three criteria. You may have one that you like in your pocket. Uh, there are certainly others that, one would, uh, that would occur to one. I want to suggest that if you came up with another criterion, and if it seemed at all reasonable, if it accorded with ordinary experience, I claim it too would satisfy this condition. It would at least agree in the limit as rings become uh, infinitely small. And that's because there's another important distinction I want to draw attention to. I had one between criteria and conditions. Here it's the distinction between rotation at a point and rotation over extended regions of space-time, or space, if we're thinking about it that way. So I claim at least that if we're talking about what happens at a point, or if you like, in the limit at a point, there's a perfectly unproblematic, unambiguous notion of rotation and relativity theory, no matter how complex uh, the background space-time structure is. Things become problematic, and we encounter the kind of effects that I've been discussing when we're thinking about objects that have extension, like our ring. They don't have to be large in any sense you might want to consider, but they have to have some finite extension. You can think about it this way. Suppose we have a fluid. In classical mechanics, we learn to represent the motion of a fluid, the flow of a fluid with a vector field. The vector represents the instantaneous motion, the instantaneous velocity of a point in the fluid at any time. And then we associate with the fluid an angular velocity, an instantaneous angular velocity at a point, and take that to be the curl of the vector field. In some old books, the curl is called the rot for rotation. Well, this way of capturing an, a, a notion of rotation at a point as the curl of a vector field, I suggest, carries over pretty much straightforwardly into the context of relativity theory. There too, um, one can use that way of capturing what's happening at a point. So, well, let me just, just say one more thing. Uh, insofar as there is an unambiguous notion about rotation at a point, then it's not surprising that these various criteria agree when we converge on what's happening at a point. It's as if they are in the limit, all delivering uh, the notion of rotation at a point that's unambiguous. Okay, so now let me formulate my condition. Suppose we have a sequence of rings, R1, R2, R3. It's understood that they all have the same axis, as in the picture, and each is, quote, non-rotating. Once again, it's in quotation marks because that's a placeholder. I'm considering some criterion of non-rotation or other. For each of those rings, Ri, let Ri be the angular velocity that that ring has with respect to, say, the first of our criteria, the compass of inertia on the axis. Remember, it's not just a yes-no criterion. I can also assign an angular velocity by keeping track of how long it takes for the telescope to complete one circuit with respect to the gyroscope. I'll imagine that I'm carrying a stopwatch with me. Well, in this case, if each one of them has angular velocity omega i, then the requirement is that 
uh, omega i goes to zero. Okay, and now I can make my third point. This is the way I can make, or one way I can make precise the claim I made before that the three criteria do agree in the limit. Um, I want to claim in all relativistic space-times, including the Kerr solution, the second and third criteria satisfy the limit condition. The first condition satisfies it vacuously. That just amounts to the condition that it agrees with itself in the limit for infinitely small rings. Um, and if you handed me some other plausible criterion, I'd It's almost certainly the case that I could assert this as well for that other possibility. Uh, so now, I've got two conditions on the board, and I can say, are there any criteria of non-rotation that satisfies both the relative rotation condition and the limit condition in the Kerr solution? So again, the way I think about it is, it delivers the correct answers in the limit, that domain where it makes sense to speak of the correct answer, and it also satisfies the relative rotation condition. Well, there's exactly one, uh, the vacuous criterion according to which no ring ever qualifies as non-rotating. If you think about those conditions, they actually have conditional form. And if the antecedents are always false, the conditions are always going to come out true. But that's the only way it can happen. So let me patch that up by introducing a non-vacuity condition some ring in some state of motion or non-motion qualifies as non-rotating. My fourth point is, in fact, the no-go theorem. There's no criterion of non-rotation that satisfies the following three conditions in the Kerr solution. Of course, I don't mean that this is only the case in the Kerr solution, but that's the best example I have because it's not a mere abstract mathematical possibility. It may well have direct physical system, uh, significance in some corner of our universe. Well, one can't satisfy all three conditions. So think about it this way. Given any candidate criterion of non-rotation uh, in the Kerr solution, if it makes correct determinations of non-rotation in the limit for infinitely small rings, and if it's non-vacuous, then it must violate the relative rotation condition. All the, one, all the criteria that would occur to us naturally would satisfy the uh, non-vacuous condition and the limit condition, so all of them must violate that relative rotation condition. So if you hand me one, I'll know in advance that it, it almost certainly will do so. Does this mean that we cannot talk about rotation and relativity theory? Not at all. In many circumstances, none of these issues arise. Different criteria will agree with each other, um, and they'll satisfy the relative rotation condition. And even otherwise, it doesn't mean that we can't talk about rotation. We just have to remember that it's a, it can be a highly ambiguous notion, and uh, our classical intuitions about how rotation works uh, may not be a reliable guide uh, to what can happen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right on time. Very good. So we've uh, time for some questions. Jeremy. 
thank you very much, David. Fascinating. Uh, I just wondered, concerning this violation of the relative rotation condition, um, can you say something about the, the sort of sizes involved in order to uh, get, you know, a perceptible Not difference, and w where, in, re in or outside of the horizon of the solution? The I mean, answer it's to the first question is not, not zero. It can be the, the, the diameter can be epsilon. So if you're thinking of the, the picture of the Kerr solution, there's a central body, it's rotating, and there's an axis. I want the ring to be centered on that axis of rotation, and it can be as far away as I want it can, be complete, it can be a zillion miles away from uh, the horizon. So funny business having to do with um, event horizon in the Kerr solution plays no role here whatsoever. Uh, so are they they're not both on that? Yes. Okay. I'm okay. using that as my central axis. So I have, um, is that clear? So we have that axis running through the center of the rotating object they can be as far away as I like, and I want both to be centered with respect to that axis. And they are, one is not rotating relative to the other, but one of them is rotating with respect to, say, CIA, and the other is not. I, 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 mean, I think I, I got lost, but probably I agree. But, so we're imagining that, um, one, that, that they're moving together rigidly, yes. and one satisfies the condition, the other one doesn't. That How close are they to each other? Um, I don't think it makes any difference whatsoever. So in terms of the diameter, it can be epsilon sub 1. In terms of their distance from each other, it can be epsilon sub 2. Wow. This is far worse than I thought <laughs> in the course of your talk. No, it's a, it's a qualitative result. And the only distinction here that's important is between, as it were, infinitesimally small and having some finite dimension. Thank you for being so worrying. <laughs> Eric. So this is a slight emendation of the question I asked you yesterday. I just, want to make, I just want to make sure I still understand the difference, if there is a difference between the space-like and the null case. So if I have, say, a, a, a very fragile, very thin glass rod, and one, a person on the, on the inner ring is holding one end, and a person on the outer ring is holding the other end, then in the situation envisaged, the rod wouldn't break. The rod, the, no. Yeah, but, but it's still the case that one person is, is rotating and the other person is not, well, by, by, this, by the, this criterion. That's right. That's so right. Uh, I'll just, just say to okay. you and to people who are familiar with this jargon, in this case, all of the points on the two rings collectively are integral curves of a common killing field, a common time-like killing field. So any notion of distance between points that you might want to think of in terms of ropes or bouncing light signals or any other kind of device, presume, if it's definable in terms of the metric, it's going to be preserved. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, so this is just a very general, non-technical, philosophical sort of question. Um, so a lot of times when, uh, when sort of intuitive criteria start to come apart uh, and, and sensible criteria conflict with each other uh, in, in such situations that we're not used to dealing with, um, there's 
I think there's often a tendency for, um, for scientists and philosophers to latch onto one criterion as the right one and then say, well, um, even in these situations, rotation is still well-defined. It's just that rotation behaves a lot differently than we thought it did, and this is the right criterion of rotation or the right c- condition for a criterion of rotation or what have you. And I, I'm just kind of curious whether you think that there's any scope for that sort of analysis here. Let's see. If I understand, I think, I think the answer is no. So it certainly isn't, isn't as if I think there would be one criterion that stands out. And it's not as if I'm saying that it would be uh, you know, inconceivable to... Uh, no, that isn't what I want to say. Um, no, there's, n- there's no criterion that stands out, and these conditions are not being presented as conceptual truths that must be satisfied. I'm not saying that because the relative rotation condition breaks down, we have some kind of conceptual incoherence, nothing like that. It's just very, very odd. <laughs> and it seems to me an interesting example of how concepts evolve. I'd want to say we're still talking about rotation, but we're recognizing that it's significantly ambiguous and it doesn't fully accord with our classical expectations. Thank you. Please. Yeah. As you explained, um, in, in some circumstances, in some situations, the um, the concept of rotation uh, becomes ambiguous. Um, is this something that's caused any confusion in the literature? There's one person refers to rotation, another person thinks they mean something different, and so on. I'm thinking, by analogy, I suppose, when evolution biologists talk about fitness and use it across purposes to some extent, and that does cause, that has in some situations caused confusion. I don't think so. I mean, this doesn't come up very often, but when one's dealing with, for example, the Kerr solution or other uh, space times where um, rotation in some sense or other might be of interest, I think without any fanfare, (laughs) physicists, mathematical physicists, uh, sort of instinctively make it clear what they're talking about. I don't know that anybody else has ever sort of focused intention in this way on, on the different criteria all at once. Maybe I could ask a question. I, th- I think I know the answer from yesterday, but let me ask you because I think it might be interesting to the... So I teach, you know, Copernican revolutions, the great, one of the great, the greatest change in human thought. And Reichenbach famously said that... Uh, if we'd known relativity theory, we would have seen that it, they were that Copernicus and Ptolemy were disagreeing over a complete non-issue. Because if the Earth is moving around the Sun, then the Sun's moving around the Earth. It, was Reichenbach right, or on your, on your analysis? Or are we coming back to yesterday's talk? Or yeah, well, talk but it's, it's the same issue, isn't it? I mean, I um, just wanted, I thought people would be interested to th- yeah. think about that. Well, um, so I'm going to say a little bit about the uh, topic yesterday. I talked about rotation in a different sense. The, so here I started with the question, what does it mean to say this ring is non-rotating? The variant I discussed yesterday was when one has two bodies, maybe two point particles. What does it mean to say that one body is orbiting around the other? And given an answer to the first question, is the relation symmetric? If B is orbiting around A, does it follow that A is orbiting around B? And Reichenbach 
certainly believed, as did many people in the early days of the theory, that because of the principle of relativity, the principle of general relativity, the statement that the sun is rotating around the earth and the other way around should really be thought of as equivalent. There's no matter of fact that distinguishes them. They're different descriptions of the same state of affairs. Um, that's one position. Um, I think many, many, many people think that was a complete confusion. It was the idea that relativity theory supports a relativist conception of motion in some thoroughgoing way. Um, I think m most people agree that's just not the case in which he thought it was. But many of those people say in some straightforward sense um, not only are the, the two statements are not equivalent, uh, the Earth orbits around the Sun and the Sun does not orbit around the Earth full stop. And yesterday I took a stand that was different from both of those and made no reference to some high-level principle about, the, about what general relativity is supposed to be like. My answer is that the questions, the statement is ambiguous. There are some senses that one can make precise in which the sun orbits around the earth and some senses in which it doesn't. So I don't think, I don't agree with Reichenbach, but I also don't agree with the person who thinks it's, you know, simple in that other way. Thank you. Yeah, Simon. Um, yes, it's um, a fascinating topic. So, uh, can I just ask a question about something like a, a, a Robinson-Walker space-time, um, where you've got um, a, so global structure is fixed and non-rotating, um, but you have um, in the vicinity of rotating stars, black holes, or whatever, you have a curse solution um, in the vicinity of such a body, a rotating body. But now, considering um, the large-scale structure of the space-time. Um, what would be the verdict on these various criteria of rotation? So, yeah, so we're thinking about an intermediate. So if we're very close to the rotating body, I'm imagining that the Kerr solution is a very good approximation, and so we get these effects. Far away from them, we wouldn't, and maybe there's some intermediate realm in which things begin to get Dicey. Well, what the question is trying oh, to sorry. get at is that um, with respect to the large-scale structure, you might think there's going to be determinate facts about rotation, that there won't be the kind of ambiguity that you've been exploring. I see. So could we have, if we're even thinking about what's happening in the vicinity of the rotating black hole, could we have a second standard of non-rotation that's imported from the global structure? Um, yeah, that, that does make sense to me. So it, it might be that even if these effects appear, there's nonetheless some sense in which we might to give, we might give um, alternate determinations of rotation looking to the global structure, yeah. So um, that's another case in which there's an ambiguity. Uh, there are different senses in one, which one might say that a ring is or is not rotating. But in this case, we can we're considering one that hasn't come up before because it makes reference to the distant stars. No more questions? <clears throat> In that case, I think we can thank David very much and we can move on to...